0: I want to focus on one particular thought on the Christmas story that I hope makes some sense as we go forward, but this thought uh I I don't feel like we spend enough time digging into the implications of the fact that God had his son born into a family, that that the Son of God was born to a couple. We know he was born of a virgin. That's unmistakable. We know that the mechanics, because I'm going to keep things PG for us this morning, that the mechanics were that the miracle is that he was born of a virgin. But that virgin was promised to a man, and that man was promised to a woman. They were both very young. They had their whole lives ahead of them. They had all the same kind of social pressures on them that anybody else did of that day. And now they have the arrival of the Son of God. And Mary... Here's this message. She responds humbly and faithfully to it. Joseph says, I think I got to get rid of this woman. I I don't know how this happened. I know I didn't do this. I know this has nothing to do with me. And so he said, uh, do not publicly disgrace her. I'll put her out privately the Lord intervenes and Joseph changes his mind, understands this is the Lord's plan. He's going to step out in faith. The part of this that I would love to do more study on for myself and maybe as we have future Christmases together that we look at some of the individual characters of the Christmas story, I would love to know more about what was going on in Joseph's mind and his experience and what, what caused him to take on such a task. I think it's fascinating. But God had Jesus born in the context of a family, because even though he is the Son of God, even though he is God Himself, he wasn't born immediately with the ability to speak the language of the day. He didn't. Uh, he didn't come out, dry himself off, and say, "Let's try out these new feet and start walking." That that development needed to occur. That, that he didn't understand at first perhaps all the things in school and so he was needed to be shown some things. Didn't know how to build all the things that he would eventually know how to build as a carpenter. Somebody needed to show Jesus how to do these things. God said, you who have created mankind, I'm gonna have you raised by mankind. I'm gonna have a man in this family raise you up to show you how to be the man like that you've created everyone to be. It's fascinating to me. It's it's miraculous. It's scandalous all throughout the whole story. If the Son of God needed a dad, how much more so do we? Now I asked uh, my my prayer partners this morning to be praying for the reception of this message, and of course, you know, the delivery of it and everything. But because I was concerned that to walk into an Advent Sunday preparing for Christmas and hearing the music of Christmas and our thoughts towards the day of Christmas, which is just now right around the corner, to to have this sense, especially for our men, to feel like they've been sucker-punched. They walked into a message about how guys need to shape up and all that kind of thing. And that isn't really my intent, though I will not apologize for the application of what we're talking about. But this isn't an attempt to to catch our men off guard or to make any of us feel terrible about certain experiences of our lives. But human fathers are critical to the picture. They're even so critical that God, the father intended for his son to be born into that context. It should blow our mind. I went out and did my research this week to figure out how crucial our fathers, you know, we've been saying these kinds of things for years and years. And every once in a while, you like to go out and just say, am I right still on this? Am I still thinking clearly on this? And so instead of just running to all the stats and the publishers and the things that agree with us, the people that know the Bible, understand God's design for the family and stuff, I went out to find the secular sources to say, what are they saying about it? What do their numbers? Tell them. And I don't have time to get through all of them. I have them saved on my computer. If anyone wants to challenge these or wants these for their own research, but the statistics were staggering—that in the absence, with the absence of a faithful guiding father in the family, so many things, by by just drastic numbers, start to head in the wrong direction. And, this, and society is recognizing, even though the bumper stickers, the slogans, the commercials make it sound like it's the complete opposite, that, that men are replaceable, that dads are replaceable, that we can figure out new ways to make up the gaps and everything. But the numbers are not lying and society is starting to admit it. I even had some shocking admissions to this this morning after first service. But I also went to some of the sources that we know and trust. I, I went to a man who's um, helped us inform much of our uh, approach to men's ministries here, and he's written a lot on the subject. So I went to see what Pat Morley had to say. And, and a long time ago, he wrote an article that addresses the quote-unquote men problem. And so I figured I would read probably about half of this article. It's going to take a couple minutes to get through, I, I beg your patience. He says, much has been made about the men problem. You can hear about it from Oprah. You can read about it in time. You can... let, me, let me take a, a second there for a second. Um, I understand generationally a lot of you are like, what do you mean read about it from time? Uh, time was a magazine. And a magazine was something that had glossy pages that we used to flip through. In fact, I think Ma- Maureen Anderson will have for the ladies an example of this relic called a magazine later on when we do Advanced Sunday. So uh, it, so he says, the men problem, you hear about it from Oprah, read about it in this thing called a magazine. You can watch the destruction it creates with Dr. Phil. Dr. Phil, bald guy, big mustache on TV. Anyway, uh, school teachers can barely educate on the heels of it. Social services are overwhelmed because of it. Employers are stumped by it. Law enforcement feels the brunt of it. Many jails and prisons are full because of it. Politicians don't know what to do with it. Candidates avoid it. Authors and academics have assembled alarming statistics to prove it. Healthcare professionals publish convincing reports to document the human cost of it. Cable shows rant at it. Talk radio personalities have all the answers for it. Movies glamorize it, and television commercials mock it. The men problem. Divorce courts are at a capacity because of it. Families are ripped apart by it. Wives soak their pillows with tears as a result of it. Children grow up in poverty as a consequence of it. Teenagers experiment with drugs and sex to cope with it. A lot of money gets spent to treat the symptoms of it. We open teenage pregnancy centers, start divorce recovery groups, establish substance abuse centers, increase budgets for social services, build homes for battered women, authorize more jail space, put extra beds in our homeless shelters, increase the number of law enforcement officers, and fit our schools with metal detectors to deal with it. Everyone is concerned about it. Many address the consequences of it, yet very few people are doing anything that will change the root of it. The men problem is almost the most pervasive, social, economic, political, and spiritual problems of all time. And the statistics are jarring. 80% of men are so emotionally impaired that not only are they unable to express their feelings, they're even unable to identify their feelings. 60% of men are in financial trouble, paying only the minimum monthly payments on their credit card balances. 50% of men who attend church actively seek out pornography. 40% of men get divorced, affecting 1 million children each year. The conclusion is inescapable. Men have become one of the largest neglected people groups. As a result, they're prone to get caught up in the rat race, lead unexamined lives and become cultural rather than biblical, quote-unquote, Christians. Alone, the men problem is horrific, but the collateral damage on marriages and families is staggering. Tonight, 36% of America's 72 million children will go to bed in a home without their biological dad, but perhaps the greatest cost to the physical absence of fathers is the practical absence of mothers. Essentially, one person must now do the work of two. As a young woman who grew up without a dad said, when my mom and dad divorced, I didn't lose didn't just lose my dad. I also lost my mom because she had to work long hours to support us. 48% of women are choosing cohabitation over marriage. 41% of babies are born to single mothers. 36% of children live in homes without their biological fathers. 18% of pregnancies are terminated by abortion. Children in female-headed families are five times more likely to live in poverty, repeat a grade, and have emotional problems compared to families where a father is present. Why in the world are we talking about such a negative, depressing, so close-to-home topic that so many of us feel this morning at Christmas time? It's because our experience with earthly fathers affects our view of how we receive the Lord into our life. And we've been talking now for two weeks in a row about how the, the children of Israel were preparing their hearts and their minds for the coming Messiah. And what darkness would he be walking into? What, what light would he bring to the darkness of the day and for them so many so much of it resulted in this thing that was experienced at a national level that that our, our, our identity was was in who the coming king would be that our sovereignty was in our national security that our enemies would would be uh, uh, pushed away from us on all borders and that we would have the prosperity and the identity that we've been craving as a nation. That isn't necessarily our context today. The enemy is attacking the family structure and and the makeup of all that we know. And even in the strongest nation of the world, the enemy has penetrated the homes of American families. And so we look to the Messiah coming, the child who would be born, the son would be given to show up and fix this stuff for us, please. It's time for us to welcome him in as the one who could do that. Now the context that Isaiah's vision comes in, as we've been discussing, is in a kingdom, and specifically when he gives the the uh, the, the announcement, if you will, that the Messiah would come uh, in chapter nine, verse six and seven. He is speaking in the under the uh, direction in Judah of King Ahaz, but Ahaz, as we've talked about, has sold himself out. He's sold the country out. He's lined up with all kinds of pagan nations. He's he's um, compromising the integrity of Judah because of all these alliances, but he didn't just arrive but there by his own devices. You see, the lineage produced something in Ahaz so that the father problem that was experiencing in Israel shows up in the kingdom of Judah. Uzziah was the first king under uh, Isaiah's prophecy, and we hear a little bit about him in 2 Kings 15. He's also referred to as Azariah, but he the scripture says that he was a... Pretty good king. He did most things right. And I think a lot of us would say, I would like to finish life with most people saying they were pretty good. I'm not saying they were perfect, but they did mostly everything right. Uzziah pays a heavy price for not doing everything right. Second Kings 15 says, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. What's going on here is that there is pagan worship taking place. And as Uzziah is leading a kingdom, he's probably dealing with a lot of things under the authority and the integrity of the of the uh, of the spoken word of God, and he's doing things the Lord's way. But he's looking at certain pockets of of society or or what their practices are. He says, "I just don't want to rock the boat over there." We might get to that later, but I've got enough. Uh, things to do over here i'm not going to bother with that so he leaves the pagan worship areas untouched he doesn't destroy the symbolism of them he doesn't chase away all the ritual of it so verse five the lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death And he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household, governing the people of the land. And I would love to say that the next verse was, and he saw what God did to his father, so he said, check. I'm going to make sure I don't make those same mistakes. Verse 34 says that uh, Jotham did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. So there's this trade-off. There's this chink in the armor, if you will, that is being handed down from generation to generation. That Israel and Judah is experiencing a dad problem. So that by the time it gets to Ahaz, we could say that he had absolutely no fear of God that there was no semblance of, of desire for worship or correcting what was going on. And we learned a couple weeks ago that Ahaz was so guilty of this, of this uh, um, trading off of the Lord's principles that he even sacrificed his own son through the fire, it says, to the false god Molech, which is not metaphoric. This is who Ahaz was and he saw the cheapening of the faith being handed down and handed down and perhaps made up his own mind. I'm going to get what's mine. I'm going to get out of this kingdom everything I can. Well, for reasons we can't quite explain, as sometimes does happen in our generations and our lineage, the Lord intervenes and Ahaz has a son called Hezekiah. And Hezekiah's report is far better than all of his ancestors so far. In 2 Kings 18, we hear that he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. So he he did things so well that it wasn't so much he did better than Ahaz or he did mostly right like Jotham or Uzziah, something that he, he did so well that the the writer wanted us to go all the way back to the lineage of David to understand this is the correction in the lineage. This is what the Lord had intended all along. What did he do? Verse four, he removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah, which is a pole that they use for all that. And he also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. So Moses holds up a serpent because God commanded they're all dying of snake bites in the, in the, in the desert, hold up the serpent. You look on it in faith and you will live. And the Lord does that. They hang on to it like a keepsake. It's this memorial of all that God's done. And they did what people do. They start looking at the, at the fixture and they say, let's worship that. I need a symbol. I need something that I can see, feel, touch, and smell. And so that was even getting out of control. And, and, and Hezekiah had to say, probably in a lot of despair, wanting to keep things like this, but seeing how they had abused it, he gets rid of it. For unto those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord the God of Israel so that after him, there was none like him among all the Kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. But the arrival of Hezekiah, the reign of Hezekiah is nowhere near in sight. When Isaiah gives the proclamation that unto us, a child will be born and a son will be given. Verse six continues and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. You can feel the despair when they hear the lineage and they see what's happening and they see the erosion of all that God had intended for their nation. And then in the midst of that darkness, God says there'll be a wonderful counselor and they say, check, we need that. There'll be a mighty God and they'll say, we definitely need that. But an everlasting father, it's a strange title to give to the the, the son of man, the one that we see as, as the one who submits to the authority and obeys the will of his father, who is truly the first person of the triune Godhead. That this isn't a description of that first person, that God the father is and always will be. That God the Son is and always will be. God the Holy Spirit is and always will be. This isn't changing any of that because the scriptures keep us uh, right on track with that, regardless of how other religions and forms of doctrine have tried to explain that one became the next. We don't have that wiggle room in the scriptures. So why call Jesus an everlasting father? It could be said that this is a quality of how Jesus would deal with his people, that because in their greatest darkness in their greatest need and seeing the problem of, of poor fathering that was being handed down, that one of the, that being one of his titles would be something that would bring so much hope to a people who see the great gap there and everlasting, not just referring to his eternal nature, but the fact that he will never quit, that his fathering his shepherding his care for his children would never tire out we could switch this title around a little bit and call him father forever this is who is being promised now in just a few moments that we have we're going to go into psalm 103 if you're turning there in your bibles i'll give you a few minutes we're gonna have these verses up on the screen but let me give a commercial for psalm 103 just for a little bit this passage of scripture is one of the most beautiful in all of scripture, containing some of the most important and necessary promises for you and I to internalize. In particular, in this topic, as we talk about the weakness of fatherhood, as we talk about the uh, the, the the breakdown in the in the family, and we start going through our own experiences—either what we've received, or what we've done, or who even we aspire to be—if you would take the time. And go down this journey through Psalm 103 and allow the Lord to internalize it in your heart, to saturate your mind with it, and wrestle with it, even if it takes several months to go through this. And personally, I would love to hear back from any of you that have said, okay, this is what this psalm has meant uh, to me as I've gone slowly through it, as I've made it a part of my life. I believe that this psalm, beyond just what one message can do, will give you a lot of hope and actually a lot of repair in your life. What we're going to do is we're going to cherry pick, though, just several verses from the chapter. We're not going to go through the whole thing, but some of these phrases will be very, very familiar to you. The quintessential thought, perhaps from this uh, uh, chapter for us this morning, is coming from verse 13, which says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, compassion is a word we get. It's one that we have um, a current understanding of, and we, we exercise compassion. Uh, we are challenged by compassion. We are moved to tears by acts of compassion that we witness. We get it. One aspect of this word that I actually love, um, the King James Version translated the original to a word called pity. It actually says pitieth, but not where I think we'll take off the TH for today. But it, that, that the Lord God pities his children. And you go, that sounds kind of condescending. Think about our parental roles. Those of you that have kids have raised kids. Those of you who are somebody's kids. I don't know how many of you that would be in here. That as parents, one of the key ingredients or one of the key motivators in our act is pity, but we just don't really realize it. We don't give that a lot of thought. We wrap it up in things like love and affection, and we're moved in that sense. But pity is this kind of subtle thing that keeps us engaged from a level of, you know what, they're so small, they can't do this themselves. They don't have the, the worldview understanding that I do all the wisdom and experience. Man, they're just they're lost in this world without me. What would they do if I wasn't here to care for them? And without even realizing that so much of our involvement in their life is motivated by understanding how, how underdeveloped they are, how small, how fragile they really are in this world. And that is a big aspect of pity. So as we start talking about father things and we're talking about the everlasting father, please understand that this is how he sees us incapable of putting all of this together on our own, that without his intervention, without his protection, where would we be? You see, the reason why I park on this is because so often we have such distorted views of God because of fathers, because of earthly fathers that it's important for us to start breaking through that and imagine the fact this is not who God is. He's not fragile. He's not frail. He's not a failure like the one I experienced. My encouragement to you would be to receive the everlasting forgiveness available from the Lord. We see this in the first four verses of the Psalm where he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Let's jump down to verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. You say that means he just turns a blind eye and doesn't deal with us at all. No, it means the measure in which he deals with us is not proportionate to the measure in which we've failed, sinned, and offended him. Amen. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, imagine the eternal unending distance that that represents, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That's a great dad. Dennis Rainey, a famous author, tells a story of one of his colleagues uh, in a book called Stepping Up. And uh, the colleague remembers a life lesson that he got from his dad about not being treated to the measure of the offense that he created and, and uh, he was a young boy doing a paper route with a bike. And as this huge gust of wind came, I think it was during a hurricane season in Virginia, I think is how he tells it, knocks him off his bike and the newspapers go flying all over the ground. And he, of course, is looking at this overwhelming disaster and he knows he has a choice. I'm going to drop my bike, go and scramble all these things up and go put them back together or I can get out of Dodge and pretend like it never happened. So he did what children do pedaled away as fast as he could. He gets home and his dad greets him and says, You're home a little bit early. You got some more work to do, I would think. How did you get it done all in time? And he admits, he doesn't drag it out, he says, Oh, it was a disaster, I dropped it all and everything and dad says, Get your coat on, get in the car, let's go let's go straighten this out. So they go down the road and when and the way that he tells the story is when they got to the area that the papers were all blown about and he saw that they were gone, he felt relief. He was like, Okay, now I don't have to deal with this. Phew and, but the dad kept driving right by there and went to a neighbor's house, pulled in their driveway, and when he went into their house, he was surprised to see all the newspaper there in the living room. Not assembled or anything, so for the next hour or so, all three people were putting these things together and putting these newspapers back. And then the dad said, okay, get the papers, get in the car, we'll drive around the yard, the neighborhood, and we'll deliver all these newspapers and the guy goes, you know, looking back, my dad taught me a great life lesson that there was a lot of uh, warmth and, and just um, satisfaction with seeing the job through so I didn't have to spend the night, the next few days in guilt that I had dropped the ball and didn't do what I was supposed to. I had seen the teamwork and I'd seen how other men help each other and all that kind of stuff. He goes, there's so many valuable lessons. He says, but it wasn't until years later that I realized how this all came about. How did my dad know what house to go to when he brought me there? Because the guy called to rail out his good-for-nothing son and say, you know what he just did? He just left the blah, 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 blah. So his dad, to help his son out and to protect his reputation, said, hey, let's get together and help this kid. And fortunately, that neighbor agreed, and they got that together. You see, the father didn't deal with the son according to his iniquity. He could have thrown him under the bus. Don't you know you're a poor reflection on me? Don't you know now the neighbors saw that you gaffed so badly and all these kinds of things? Instead, he says, I'm going to repair The situation. You see, this is who the Lord is. This is what He does for us. He looks at things. He says, I've dealt with that. I'm not turning a blind eye. I'm not some benevolent Santa Claus. You see, our sin is so costly that Jesus cannot. He does not and he will not just turn a blind eye to our sin. But he will take the mess that we've made. He will pay for it, redeem it, and he will put it back together and use it in a way that brings him glory and brings us a lot of fulfillment too, if we're being honest. We can receive the everlasting forgiveness of the Lord. We also can know the Father who knows everything about us. And that may not be a very comforting statement at first. The more we think about it, we're like, really? Oh, wait, no, not that, right? Yep, that. He knows that too. Medicine, psychology, they've been striving to, to find the keys that, that all things can be unlocked and we can know everything. We can answer the most important questions of life, the, the who am I, where did I come from, where am I going type questions but in the role of everlasting father, not only do we have our guilt dealt with, but now our identity crisis is dealt with too because he's a father, which means even though I know everything about you, even though I know exactly what you bring to the table, what you're presenting to me, I take you anyway. I'm going to work with you, but I'm going to own you. I'm going to love you everlasting and faithfully. One little verse, one little phrase in verse 14 says, for he knows Our frame. One of my favorite passages to share with people that are in a crisis or in times of uh, turmoil or wondering, whether it be in a hospital room or uh, facing death or at a funeral situation that I pray brings a lot of of hope and and comfort comes from Psalm 139. And just in the first few verses, the psalmist says, oh, Lord, you've searched me and know me. You know, when I sit down, you know, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is in my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. And He goes on to say, you've known me uh, as, I was un- as I was forming in my mother's womb. You see, being known by God is so powerful because of what we've said, because he knows you with all your good, bad, and ugly and loves you anyway. You start to get a sense of, well, that's what an everlasting father brings. Lastly, I would say that we can trust the father who loves us endlessly. Verse 8, the psalmist says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding or overflowing in steadfast love. Jump down to verse 17, he says, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. On those who fear him. This isn't a great word when we're talking about our, our dad relationships. We, we don't like the word fear entering into the equation, and so it trips us up a little bit. We already heard this earlier on in the message about that God is good to those who fear him. And last week we talked about the, the illustration of Jill as she walks into the, the forest in the story in the Chronicles of Narnia, Narnia series. When Aslan, the lion, the great, fierce and intimidating lion, lion is laying there and she wants a drink and he's not apologizing for his strength and his might and his, his fierce presence and he's unmovable, there's a fear that she has to step into. If she's really going to trust that she's safe with him, she has to walk into that fear. You and I cannot trust anyone without experiencing some element of fear, right? That's what faith is. Faith is stepping into that fear. Faith is trying to ignore some of that fear and do what you know you're being called to anyway. But there's also, I think, a more subtle part of fear that happens in trust that uh, may not occur to us. Is that if I need to trust somebody else, then that means to some degree, in some way, shape, or form, they have an advantage over me that in sense I fear some of that power. That has to be true in my relationship with God. As I start to recognize his enormity, as I get start to recognize his power and his strength, I have to come closer to that, knowing full well he could squash me like a bug. But knowing his character and his promise and that he's never backed down on any of his promises, I know I can step in. Fear is always going to be an element of our trust of the Father's care. Verse 17 finishes with an interesting statement. In his righteousness... He will show basically to children's children, a good dad loves down the line. A good dad doesn't check out when their son is 18 or their child is off to college or something. Say, I've done my part. You're on your own. There's elements of that. I know in wisdom we've got to do. Don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for what is it called? Helicopter parenting or something like that. But a good dad says, my influence over my child's life doesn't just end at a certain age. I want to influence my child's children and their children if the Lord tarries and allows me. But even if I can't physically do it, the legacy that I am trying to honor in the Lord will repeat generation after generation after generation. Think back to Uzziah, Jotham. If they had said, I don't want to have any compromise in my reign, in my kingdom, because I don't want my kids' kids to feel the effect of this, I wonder where Ahaz would have been. A good dad loves down the line. In a moment, we're going to uh, separate. We're going to ask our men to go in the hub or ask our ladies to stay here. We're going to do Advanced Sunday. I share all that I've shared with you this morning partially also to let you know this is why we have a targeted ministry to men. We have one to ladies. It's not to the exclusion of our women. But you understand why the heartbeat of this church is to see the problem that we've experienced with men in our society start to reverse and change. And I I, I had this thought after in first service when I'm standing out there in a sea of men out in the hub. I'm like, this is what starts turning the problem around. That men at faith are starting to take responsibility, that they're growing in their faith. We have been blessed for generation after generation with faithful men in the presence of this church. Why would we stop now? Why would we slow down? Be praying for the leadership of our men. Be praying for the effectiveness. Be praying for the safety of our men as the enemy is trying and succeeding in a lot of ways. Even more recently in our congregation, he's succeeding in a lot of ways at, at attacking the lives of men in our church. This is a, a full church issue that we need to get behind and pray for. But guys, listen, if that has not been your experience, if you feel as though, you know, I haven't done such a great job, I'm sitting here and I feel a little beat up, I want to encourage you, let the everlasting father who is present within you show himself real and through you to the life of your kids around You are not going at this in your own strength. You are not going at this by yourself, that this one who was promised by Isaiah, who arrived in a manger, is the one who truly lives within each and every one of you if you've surrendered your heart and your life to him. This is the advantage we have. We don't just have to mimic him or copy him. We can allow him to live through us, and that comes through our surrender to that. To those of you who are children of dads, I encourage you, don't just surrender your view of God to the distorted image of a father. that maybe wasn't great or even much, much worse. That God's image, his reality is so much more powerful than any one, any one man can do to it. Don't let that image be distorted because of that. He is real and he is faithful and he will reveal himself to you if you seek him out. Amen. I'm going to ask us to stand. We're going to close in prayer very quickly. I'm going to ask our men to make their way out into the hub, our ladies to stay behind. God, I want to thank you for the power of your word. I pray that it goes home with people today. I pray that it would be practical and guide them like a light in the darkness. Lord, thank you, God, for their faithfulness and for their attention. Be pleased, Lord, with our worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.